David Hamilton is the veteran broadcaster, a badge of honour in my opinion, whose career has covered most aspects of media. He started out as a TV script writer for the series Portrait of a Star and then became an announcer for ABC TV, where he appeared with the comedian Ken Dodd on the TV series Doddy's Music Box. It was Ken Dodd who affectionately gave him the nickname Diddy. His career has covered BBC Radios 1 and 2, sometimes simultaneously, Top of the Pops, Seaside Special, and the Eurovision Song Contest previews. He has compared shows by The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, David Cassidy, and hosted shows at the Royal Albert Hall in the London Palladium. As an author, he's written four books, one an autobiography, two about broadcasting, and another, The Fulhamish Tale of 2012. More recently, David is one of the founding members of Boom Radio, a station geared towards baby boomers, and is, as I am told, one of the nicest people in the business. Welcome, David. And from what I've read about you, you were keen on journalism when you left school, then National Service came along. Were you a willing conscripty? Not at all, uh, Diane. And thank you, by the way, very much for inviting me onto your programme. Um, no, not at all. I My first job, really, was as a scriptwriter with ATV, and it was going really well when I got my call-up papers and I had to do two years' national service in the RAF. But it was a career changer for me because I was posted to Germany, to Cologne, which was the home of the British Forces Network radio station, and um, I went along to see the boss there, and and I said, look, this whole business is a complete waste of time for me. Um, could you use me at your radio station as a scriptwriter? So he said, well, we don't actually employ scriptwriters as such, but we do need somebody to read the football results. So I was a great football fan. So I started off doing that. And one day I said to him, I said, all this music that you play, people like Bing Crosby and Peggy Lee, I said, it's fine for the officers, but the troops want rock and roll. So I don't think he knew what I meant by rock and roll. So um, he said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a show on Sunday afternoon and we'll see how it goes. So I started doing this rock and roll show, which, of course, the troops loved. And I played the music of Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, all the great rock and rollers of the time. Elvis was in Germany at the same time doing his national service with the U.S. Army. I think he was in Frankfurt and I was in Cologne. So I didn't actually meet him, but I did play his music. And that's what gave me the bug for sitting at a microphone and broadcasting. That's an amazing story. And my gosh, if you forgive me, you were bold to say what you did. <laughs> yeah, well, I was I was a very cheeky chappy. But um, the thing was that uh, all the marching and firing guns and everything like that, I hated it. It was just um, not in my nature at all. I'm very sort of a uh, pacifist kind of person. But national service was something you had to do at the time. And um, so I hated all the Air Force side of it and loved the broadcasting side of it. So were you the only member of your family to um, uh, engage in national service or...? 
Well, um, I was an only child, but my father was a journalist, by the way. He he was a reporter on the Daily Mail. And when the war began, uh, he was, I don't know whether he was called up or he volunteered, but he joined the army and uh, he fought in Italy and he was quite badly wounded and uh, hospitalized in Bari. And um, unfortunately, when he came back to England, my mother had met somebody else. Um, and my father said, well, he said, you know, um, I, we've all had our little flings during this time because nobody knew uh, where what was happening the next day or the day after that. Uh, but my mother said, no, I've met somebody and I've fallen in love with him. And uh, my parents' marriage sadly broke up after that. But um, if it had not been for my national service, I probably would continue, would have continued like my father as a writer. So how and when at this age were you consuming music? Um, well, I was part of the rock and roll generation. Um, until that, the music had been things like How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? And um, Feet Up, Pat Him on the Popo. <laughs> which was our parents' music. I remember my father had a radiogram and um, he used to play uh, things like K-Star and the Rock and Roll Waltz, which was not really rock and roll. And he played the things like that on there. And um, I remember one of the first records that I bought was Roy Orbison and Only the Lonely. And I kept playing it on my father's radiogram. And he said, why do you keep playing the same record over and over again? And I said, because it's fantastic. So can you imagine my thrill years later to meet Roy Orbison and interview him. I did one of the last television interviews for a satellite TV station uh, before he died. And I'm sitting in the studio here and opposite me is the big O. He's got the shades on and I look at him and I think, my God, this man is a legend. He's been there right through my lifetime. And I think it's the one time that I was almost kind of a bit nervous and certainly in awe of him, but he was a lovely guy. So two years um, doing national service, then what? Well, when I came back to England, I went back to ATV where, and my script writing job because by law they had to keep that open. But the head of the script department who'd given me my job in the first place had moved on and I didn't get on really very well with the the chap who had taken over from him. I think he had a full team of writers and resented the fact that he had to take on another one that he didn't really need at that stage. But um, later on that year, a job came up for uh, a, a job as a television announcer in the days when announcers appeared in vision in between the programmes. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, it was ABC television in Manchester. So um, I went along for the audition, which was at the ABC studios at Teddington. And they said to me, can you ad lib to camera for a minute about the evening's programmes. Well, it was easy for me because I was writing about them all the time because I wrote some continuity scripts and I took with me a stopwatch um, and I could time so that I finished on time. So I had the stopwatch under the desk and uh, I spoke for exactly a minute and I think it was the stopwatch that got me the job. Tell us about meeting Ken Dodd. Yeah, well, I was working for ABC and this series, again, you mentioned Doddy's Music Box, and it was a program that featured some of the top singers of the day, people like Dusty Springfield, Billy Fury, uh, Matt Monroe, and interspersed with sketches with uh, Ken Dodd and um, some actors, very well-known actors, and they needed uh, a feed, a straight man. And... Uh, 
Ken said, what about that chap who does the continuity in between the programmes? So we'd never met before. We, he got, they got me into the studio. On the first day of rehearsals, the people in the uh, audience, as it were, the people in the studio were the cameramen, the makeup girls, the uh, prop, props boys. And that was then that Ken looked at me, and because he was about half a foot taller than me, and he said, what do you think, did he, David? And everybody chuckled. And he said to me, Afterwards, he took me to one side. He said, do you mind me calling you that? He said, because if you mind, I won't do it anymore. But if you don't mind, I think it'll stick. So I said to him, well, I don't mind. And I've been stuck with it now for about 50 years. How considerate of him, though. It was. He was lovely. And I learnt a lot. <coughs> Excuse me. I learnt a lot about working with him. Um Later on, I worked as well with Tommy Cooper and Benny Hill, and I was very lucky to work with some of the comedians of the day. Um, I remember working with Tommy Cooper, and I got the scripts, and I had a girlfriend at the time who helped me to learn the lines. So I said, do you think this is funny? She said, there's not a funny line in it. I said, he's going to die on his backside. But as soon as Tommy Cooper said these words that were so unfunny on paper, the audience fell about because he was just a naturally funny man. He was funny looking. Um, everything about him was was funny. And uh, there's a lovely story about him. that He was doing a royal variety performance where the protocol is that the Queen comes down the line of stars and you don't talk to her, she talks to you, but... Tommy Cooper never worried about protocol. So he said, excuse me, ma'am, do you like football? And the Queen said, not very much, no. He said, could I have your cup final tickets? <laughs> Brilliant story. Listen, I'm going to have to motor on because you've got so many stories and I could talk to you all afternoon. I'm very intrigued to understand why you chose the three degrees when will I see you again? What's the reasoning behind this choice? Oh, lovely story. Um, back in the 70s, I was doing the voiceover on Sunday night at the London Palladium when it came back. And three girls came out on stage and sang a song called Year of Decision. And it was about the time that Diana Ross was leaving the Supremes. And I looked at these three girls. They were not, as it turns out, they were not from Detroit. They were from Philadelphia. But I thought they could be the new three degrees. I thought they were absolutely, uh, they could be the new Supremes. And they were uh, the three degrees. So um, I said to my producer the next morning at Radio One, uh, what's our record of the week? And he told me, I said, can we change it at the last minute? He said, why? I said, did you see the Palladium show last night? He said, no. I said, well, millions of people didn't, uh, did. And they will have seen uh, these girls sing the song Year of Decision. So um, he listened to it and he said, it's really good, isn't it? So we had it as our record of the week. And very often when we had a, a new artist um, on a record of the week, we would stick with them. And if they brought out another record that was good, we'd go with that as well. Well, the next one was When Will I See You Again, which, of course, was one of the best pop songs ever made. So we had that as our Hamilton Hotshot, I called it, my record of the week. And that went to number one in about 25 different countries, including the UK, sold something like five million around the world and uh, propelled the girls into mega stardom. Of course, I got to know them quite well after that. Uh, I worked with them on Seaside Special, which you mentioned earlier, um, interviewed them for a program called My Top 12 for 
uh, Radio 1. And uh, I've spoken to Sheila Ferguson in, in recent times. Uh, of course, when Prince Charles famously danced with her, they became by royal appointment. But I do have to say, I found them first. When will I see you? Three Degrees uh, were a tremendous success story for us because we, we'd got behind them. And then we got very much behind the Philadelphia sound and we got into a lot of the other uh, Philly records as well because I I loved Motown and Soul and um, then Philly came along and I loved that as well. Now, um, you have chosen a lot of um, black artists. I know we have a brief for the show that we like our guests to choose 80% black uh, music of black origin as it were but you just sent through without hesitation your list of six records but you said you were listening to rock and roll so where did this interest begin well you have to remember of course that rock and roll initially was black music it was it was white artists who covered uh song i mean for example uh, a lot of fats domino songs were covered by pat boone um so uh, little richard would be one of the uh, most genuine of the original rock and rollers so that was black music and then in the 70s uh motown and soul uh came along and um I've been doing my daily program on Boom Radio, which is a new radio station, and every day I have a Hamilton Hotshot, which is one of my records of the week, and I've still got the old jingle. And it was only listening to it the other day that I realised how many black artists I had featured on the Hamilton Hotshot. And I think one of the reasons was that at that time I was going around the country and I was doing lots of gigs in discos and clubs, and of course... Black music was what people were dancing to. You know, it was, um, wasn't it, uh, Sister Sledge, Cool and the Gang, you know, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, all these terrific 
bands and groups and all this fantastic music. So I would say that a very hard, high percentage of my records of the week were by black artists. Now, Al Green, what's the story behind this track? Well, I saw Al Green at a place called The Venue. Um, it, was the, it was a venue called The Venue in Victoria. I saw him live. And I always had loved his music, but live he was absolutely fantastic. And um, Let's Stay Together, uh, Shalala Make Me Happy, which I think is the one that I've chosen. All those are just among my favourite records. So very happy memories. He is, of course, uh, the Reverend Al Green. religious uh, upbringing or spirituality uh well my my uh my father was a catholic although he was a lapsed catholic uh he was irish and of course a lot of catholics in ireland uh my mother was church of england um i have not really been uh a practicing uh i've not practiced religion myself um i like to believe in that there is a god uh, I suppose I am, uh, what am I, an agnostic, is that right? Would that be right? Possibly. Somebody who who <laughs> believes in God, but not in any one particular religion. So long as you live your true, honest life the way you are and are happy and do no harm to others, that's sufficient. 
I think so. I I think I am a great believer in karma, which is that if you do evil, nasty things to other people, it will come back on you. So I think that's one way that people live within the laws of of society is 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 not thinking necessarily that they're going to be banged up and sent to prison but just thinking that you see if you do horrible things to other people say for example you you steal or the worst thing you could do is you kill somebody uh you're actually making the world a lesser place and since you live in it the, you are making the place that you live in a lesser place you can't get away with it you can't do awful things and then have everything fine for you that's my belief on your <laughs> third track hot chocolate everyone's a winner i remember seeing oh. them perform this on top of the pops i loved hot chocolate um sometimes when uh, we're here in the garden, Mrs. H and I, we sit out in the garden uh, in the summer and uh, we we play our favourite music, probably have a glass of wine or two and play our favourite music. And time and time again, we go back to our hot chocolate albums. They were such a fantastic band. Errol Brown, of course, uh, was just the most charismatic lead singer. And if anybody ever said that bald men can't be beautiful, my God, he was a good looking man. I think I probably introduced them on Top of the Pops. I know that uh, I introduced them on some of their uh, records and uh, quite quite possibly this one. Uh, so I'd have been at Radio 1. Um, Hot Chocolate would have featured on several of my uh, Hamilton Hot Shots, my records of the week, and they were definitely among my favourite bands. And what was he like as a person that you recall? Lovely. And... Um, uh, Jeanette, his wife, uh, we got to know them both really quite well and just lovely, lovely, lovely gentleman and uh, just most wonderful voice. Made some very good solo records, of course. Um, I think Your Personal Touch, I think, was one and uh, he made some records without hot chocolate a bit later on that were also very, very, very good.
at this time you are absolutely seeped in music. Um, from yep. wanting to be a journalist, how did you feel about the direction your career was going? Well, from the time that I started in Germany, which uh, I hate to say it now, was 1959, so that's over 60 years ago, I sat in front of a thing called the microphone, which I'm sitting in front of now, and I I got a drug. I didn't particularly get into I didn't at all really get into drugs and I didn't particularly get into alcohol apart from enjoying a nice glass of wine. But I got very hooked on the microphone and I regarded it as a kind of friend that I spoke into. And I think the key to radio, as you know, is that it's one person talking to one person. It doesn't matter how many people are listening. It could be millions, but it's a, it is the ultimate one-to-one medium. And I was always, particularly when I was younger, I was, I was a bit shy. I wasn't terribly good at making conversation. So the lovely thing about a microphone was that you could be in a room completely on your own and, and you were communicating with not one person but a whole lot of people. And so uh, it's a wonderful medium for shy people. Dear Peter sent me some crib notes and he said um, you did early interviews with Cliff Richard and the Beatles. I mentioned you did with the Beatles before. Um, What was it like interviewing these artists at that particular time? Because we live in a very different age now where music is not really as representative as it was, um, you know, in the 70s. And I'm a child of that era. Yes, well, the interview I did with the Beatles, uh, uh, well, well, we'll talk about Cliff first because that was earlier. Cliff came out to Germany in 1959 to promote his record Living Doll. And um, my impression of him then has never changed. The ultimate professional, uh, absolutely, you know, uh, dedicated to his career, um, but very nice with it, you know, a nice man. Um, and deserves all the success and plaudits that have come his way. Um, the Beatles, I interviewed in 1963, one of the first television interviews with them. They'd had a couple of hits. I had no idea that they would go on to be the biggest band of all time. Uh, to be honest with you, I was pretty green. I was probably only about 23 um, and I suppose guess they were probably even a bit younger, but um, I was fairly green in the art of television interviewing and with four of them who were somewhat anarchic, shall we say, um, it was quite difficult. So it wasn't the best experience I ever had. But later that year, I introduced them in concert in Manchester somehow or other somebody said oh you've interviewed the Beatles would you like to introduce them on stage and I remember that tickets to see the Beatles were 10 shillings so that's 50 pence in today's money of course 10 shillings went a bit further then and um, the following year um, I introduced the Rolling Stones in uh, Manchester Palace Theatre Manchester quite a good story for you about that I had a little red MGB sports car that I was rather proud of at the time. And I parked it at the back of the theatre, as you could in those days. Somebody thought it was Mick Mick Jagger's car and scratched a love note on the bonnet. So for a week, I was driving around in my car with I love you, Mick, on the bonnet. (laughs) That's extraordinary. I mean, how did you feel when you first saw that? Uh, Well, when I saw the uh, scratching on the bonnet? Yes. I was a bit upset, to be honest, because I think my fee was 
by this time had gone up to 12 guineas. That was 12 pounds and 12 shillings. And I think it cost me about twice that to have it the car resprayed. So um, I lost money, but it was worth it really to have the experience of introducing the stones and seeing them, you know, I did meet them in the, in the dressing room and had a chat with them. I don't think they were the slightest bit interested in me, to be honest, but it was fascinating uh, watching them at work. And I saw the other day um, a video of the Stones doing brown sugar in the 90s. So remember, that was a hit in 1971. So we're talking 20 years later. And the raw energy, particularly Jagger, on stage and you watched and you thought, well, that's just one number that they were doing at a concert that evening. And the energy that just came across from it, and it's it's when you see that that you realise why they were such a great band. So I'm told Excuse that- me, I'm going to have a slurp of tea. I'm a little bit <laughs> hoarse. I've just done a two-hour radio show. Yeah, nice cup of tea. Mine's Mine's gone a bit cold, but still. <clears throat> yeah, so great memories. Great memories with... People I've worked with, um, uh, David Cassidy, I compared his tour in the 70s because he was a very hot teenage, teenage idol and uh, it was fascinating seeing... Um, I'll tell you a story about David Cassidy was that he hated the girls screaming because he was a good singer and he wanted them to hear him singing. And they were screaming all the time, so he put cotton wool in his ears. And then when he put the cotton wool in his ears, not only could he not hear the screaming, but he couldn't hear the band so that didn't work. <laughs> well, nice have... guy, though. Again, nice, nice man. Yes, yeah, so that, that does come across. I have to say I had his posters on my bedroom wall as a kid. You as well. <laughs> there you are, you Absolutely. see. Absolutely. So I want, to, I want to go back and ask, when you were an announcer, um, I'm told that you used to get in these cheeky comments. Can you give us an example of what you might say? Yeah, well, it was, uh, Diane, I've got to tell you, it was a very boring job. You'd sit around for hours waiting for 20 seconds or 30 seconds between programs. And so I tried to inject a little bit of humour to lighten it up a bit. And um, I said a few things that um, probably you wouldn't get away with today. Uh, But one of the things that I did say, I remember, do you remember Crossroads? I do. Yeah, the shaky yeah. walls. <laughs> what? The shaky walls, the set. Uh, exactly. It was the o- it was the only program on which the sets moved more than the actors. Yes. <laughs> and um, I, the the scriptwriters used to give you a little bit of info on the program to introduce it with, and um, so this particular night, the scriptwriter had written this for me, and it said, tonight. An actor arrives at the Crossroads Motel. So I delivered the line. I looked at the clock just out of sight of the camera, just to the side of the camera, and realised I had three seconds left. So I filled it up like this. I said, tonight an actor arrives at the Crossroads Motel and not before time. So I had a I had a phone call. It was a phone in the studio. I had a phone call from Noel Gordon, who is the Queen of Crossroads, and she said to me, 
David, it's Noel. I said, oh, hello, Noel. She said, I'm very upset with you. I said, why is that? She said, well, what you just said about my program. So I said to her, well, Noel, I said, it's just what everybody says about the program. So <laughs> I, I knew I could get away with it because she worked for ATV and I was working for Thames, so it wasn't a Thames program. But I'll tell you another, talking about the announcing thing, another nice story. Um when Monty Python's uh, Flying Circus was, uh, when it when it made its debut on BBC television, uh, the cast of Monty Python or the producer said to Thames Television, could we have your station ident and could we have David Hamilton uh, introduce Monty Python's Flying Circus on BBC One? So Thames Television said, well, we would like to know what the script is so that we don't come out of it badly. So they sent the script through and um, Thames said, no, that's fine. Uh, you'll have to talk to David's agent, but um, we, we give him permission to do it. So what happened was this. An episode of Monty Python began like this. The Thames television ident, da, 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 da. And then me coming up and say, good evening. There are some great programmes for you tonight on Thames. But first, here's a load of old rubbish on the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> So I actually appeared in uh, in a Monty Python show, and I met them all. I met Cleese and Palin and all the others. Great, you know. We I went to BBC Television Centre to do it, and um, I think they were just they had a laugh. They just sat back and, oh, this is funny. We've got Thames announcer rubbishing our program. <laughs> I must get yeah. back onto your uh, music choices. We're on to Junior Walker yes. and the All Stars. How sweet it oh. is. I saw Junior Walker and the All-Stars live at the Rainbow Theatre in Finsbury Park, which sadly is one of those venues now gone, like the venue where I saw Al Green, which I mentioned earlier. And um, watching the show, it was a terrific show. They were a great band. But during the evening, I got a tap on the shoulder from somebody sitting in the row behind me who said, uh, it's Diddy David. And I turned round, it was Paul McCartney, who, of course, I'd interviewed all those years ago. Uh, with the Beatles on their first interview. So um, it was great. Uh, uh, I, I was quite chuffed. The girl with me was quite impressed. Said, oh, Paul McCartney knows David Hamilton. So that was that was nice. But uh, Junior, what a great band. Again, you know, until you see these bands live, you don't realise how terrific they are. Thank you, baby. Thank you, baby. I want to stop. 
Billy Paul, Don't Give Up oh. On Us. This is a an interesting choice. Mm. It's a, another slurp of tea. Uh, it's a very interesting choice, actually, because David Soul, Don't Give Up On Us, was a record of the week of mine. As you know, he was uh, one of Starsky and Hutch. And uh, Tony McCauley, who was one of our best songwriters, uh, wrote and produced him in Los Angeles. And uh, the record was a great hit. I was doing my show uh, recently on Boom Radio, and I didn't know that Billy Paul had recorded this song as well. And uh, he was another one of the Philadelphia artists. But when I heard it, I thought, gosh, this is fabulous. First of all, Billy Paul is a terrific singer. Secondly, the backing. And I'm I'm sorry to say, but he sang David Soul off the stage. So um, I put this one, never heard it uh, until about a month ago, but absolutely love it.
<laughs> Is that my bird singing in the background? I think so. Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the country. I'm in Sussex, and I'm I'm on a farm, and um, it's love this time of the year. Yeah, I can hear it now. The bird song is wonderful. Just recently, we had the Canada geese over. Um, they make a lot of noise, uh, and there are lots of cows around and and uh, sheep bed down here in the winter. I don't run the farm. I just live in a in a house on the farm. But it's it's a lovely environment. I moved down here a few years ago, and lockdown hasn't been too bad because. Um, my heart has gone out to people living in high-rise blocks, you know, with three young children. But living here, um, I can't complain. And a, a little while ago when somebody said, look, we'd like you to do a daily radio show and you can do it from home, uh, it was like all my prayers were answered. And then you invited me on your show. There you are, you see. <laughs> but you also have a special story about this particular house, don't you? I do. Uh, during the during the war, I was evacuated to this farm. My grandfather at the time ran the farm, and I had many happy memories here. The last time I was here was I was fifteen, and at that time, my grandfather retired. The farm was sold, and I thought I'd never come back here again. Anyway, a few years ago, I was doing a show in Dubai with some bands: Marmalade, Dave D, The Searchers, and. We were talking about Junior Campbell, who had been a member of Marmalade, and I used to play football with in the Showbiz 11 football team. And I said, has anybody seen Junior Campbell? So I think it was Dave D. said, well, he lives in a very remote farmhouse. It's by a mill and a river. It's in the middle of nowhere. You would never find it. And I thought, it sounds very much like the farm that I grew up on. So I came back to England, and I called Junior Campbell, and he said, yes, the farmer said that you grew, has told me that you grew up here. So my wife and I came down and we spent a lovely afternoon in the garden with Junior and, and his missus. And I said to him, if you ever sell this house, you must let me know. So about a year later, he called me up and he said, look, just to let you know, we're moving on. I'm going to put the house on the market. I said, no, no, don't put it on the market. I I will buy it. So we didn't haggle about the price, the price that he wanted I paid. And uh, I've been back here and it's hardly changed down the years and I can walk my dog around the fields as I did when I was a little boy with my first dog and all those memories come flooding back. Is the dog Amber? The dog is Amber and she's a cocker spaniel. <laughs> You're lucky she hasn't barked yet. Very often she sits at my feet in, in my studio here and uh, she's barked a couple of times and people have said to me, I played a certain record and people have said to me, I didn't know that record had barking on it. I said, well, I said it doesn't. I said, that was my, do I opened the microphone, that was my dog Amber. <laughs> so I want to go on to your last track because I've got other questions that I want to ask you. Okay. So um, you're talking about Billy Paul. Um, where were you in this stage of your career when you heard this particular track? I know you said about a month ago, but with regards to the David Soul um, version... Yes, Radio 1, and um, I had that as my record of the week at Radio 1. Your final choice is a lovely Aretha Franklin, Until You Come Back to Me. 
Well, Aretha Franklin, of course, as we know, is the Queen of Soul. What a voice. Uh, respect, of course, you hear in a completely different vein. But I love, I love the song, which is written by Stevie Wonder, another of my favourite artists, and I love her voice. To me, this is pure class. There are so many other So, if I'd had time, so many other songs I could have played as well. But uh, Aretha Franklin, Until You Come Back to Me, that's what I'm going to do. Wonderful. last week um, from Stone the Crows and she told me that she um, babysat for Aretha's kids in the 70s when they were in London for one night. Oh, how fabulous. <laughs> what a great uh, story. <laughs> she's, a, she's a great singer, of course. Um, Maggie, Maggie absolutely. Yeah. Extraordinary voice. Yeah. Um, and is going on tour um, next year. You're a lifelong Fulham FC fan. Where did your interest in sport come from? 
Uh, well, when I was a boy, I played a lot of football at school and uh, Fulham was my local team. Uh, my mother, my parents, as I told you, broke up. My mother lived in a flat in uh, Fulham just by Putney Bridge Station and I would walk through the park uh, uh, to my local ground. So I followed them for many years and then a few years ago when Mohammed Al-Fayed was the chairman, uh, I was asked, would I like to do the announcing there, uh, which involved the pre-match uh, goal scorers during the game, half-time entertainment, um, and then after the match, hosting one of the lounges with George Cohen, who played in the England World Cup team of 1966. So I did it for 18 seasons, uh, during which we had about three promotions. We had so much success. We had a European final in Hamburg, which I went to and did some of the announcing there. Um, and when Alf, Mr. Alfayed uh, decided that he was going to sell the club, I, I thought that was a good time to go. He had been very, very good to me, looked after me extremely well, and um, we had developed a terrific rapport. I would always he was he was a showman and I would always introduce him on the pitch and uh, he would come out waving his flag and we'd always have a bit of a chat I'd introduce him to the crowd and one week he brought with him Michael Jackson and uh, somebody tipped me off and said uh, get ready to introduce Michael Jackson to the crowd well until that point the biggest star that we'd had there had probably been Hugh Grant who of course is a big star but not an international star on the uh, on the level of Michael Jackson so <laughs> I get the cue I said ladies and gentlemen please welcome the one the only Michael Jackson so he walks out to what I can only imagine is I can only describe as polite applause and he, he walks round the pitch with Mohammed Al-Fayed and I think what happened was they thought it was a look-alike. They they didn't believe it could be the Michael Jackson. But suddenly he's come to he's arrived at the main stand, and they clock him. They get a look at him, and they think it is Michael Jackson. So suddenly, you know, there's this enormous ovation. Uh, but it was quite funny the uh, how it, how it changed. First, they they didn't think it was him. Um, the next star who came there was Tony Curtis, and this time they believed it, and he actually ran up the terraces and kissed lots of women. So, uh, <laughs> uh, But with Mohammed Al-Fayed, of course, knew all these stars, and uh, how he got Michael Jackson was that he had opened the Harrods sale when uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed owned Harrods, and uh, uh, he, Mohammed Al-Fayed said to Michael Jackson, why didn't you come and watch my soccer team? So I think Michael Jackson said, I don't think I've ever seen soccer. He said, well, come and, come and see my team. So he did. Uh, and people, then, then of course, very controversially, uh, later, Mohammed Al-Fayed put up a, a statue of Michael Jackson outside the ground. Normally, it's it's great players, you know, but it was Michael Jackson. And um, when the next chairman came along, he took it down. But it was a shame because... Um, it, when uh, Fulham is on the Thames, as you probably know, and when boats came past, uh, the the, the uh, commentator on the boats would say, um, oh, and that's a statue of Michael Jackson who came to Fulham Football Club because he was a very close friend of Mohammed Al-Fayed. So it was a real landmark, and it's a shame, really, that, uh, that he went. You, you know that expression, um, if you find a job you love, you will never work a day in your life. I get the yes. sense that's what you have lived. Absolutely. I've never worked a day in my life. Um, I've, I've done what I've loved doing. I've loved the music. I've loved the um, 
you know, talking to people. What's the word I'm looking at? Communication. Um, yes, I've absolutely loved every minute of it. I've met interesting people. I've had fun times. Uh, written some books about it, as you mentioned. And, uh, well, I I was... The person I have to thank, by the way, is a man called Pete Murray. Gosh, yes. When I was yes, when I was a boy, I used to listen to Pete Murray on Radio Luxembourg. I grew up listening to him, and uh, he was very funny, had a lovely voice, and I said to my friends at school, "When I leave school, I'm going to be a DJ like Pete Murray." And they laughed at me because I had a bit of a South London accent at the time, talked a bit like that. All right, John, and they laughed at me. So I got myself a Grundig tape recorder i hired it and i read things into it and played them back and got rid of the rough edges on my voice and pete murray uh i have to thank him for my career because he was my inspiration he is now my very very good friend i see quite a bit of him and um, i've got to tell you that he is now 95 tell me did you manage to sell your plate d1 ddy I haven't sold it yet. I had an offer from Ken Dodd's widow uh, a while ago who said that she wanted to buy it off me, uh, but she hasn't come back. So I'm still waiting. I'm I'm keeping it for her because I think it couldn't go to a better home. It can go up there with all the other Diddy men in Liverpool. And I understand you collect toy buses and coaches. Well, I'm actually looking at them as I'm talking to you now. They're in my study here. I'll tell you the story about that. I've got a friend uh, who lives in Worthing, and I mentioned to him that when I don't know how it came about, he's very into buses, and um, I think trains as well, but particularly buses. And I mentioned to him that when I was a little boy, I had um, two red buses and two green buses, and I used to run them round the round the room at home. It's the sort of thing that only children do. So they've got no one to play with. And every time I go down to Worthing, um, he gives me another bus. So I've got this incredible collection now. I don't know how many I've got, probably about 50. But there are all sorts of uh, different ones. And there are double-deckers, single-deckers. There are some uh, trams and trolley buses. And uh, so, yeah, I've got I've got my own bus garage. You, know, you give me the impression that you have... Um, breeze through life with um, happiness um, and gratitude. I know that word sounds particularly crass, but you've enjoyed what you have done. I don't get the impression that you've had to overcome any sort of major adversities. Yes, we do as part of life, but you've, you've got wonderful stories and so forth. What would you go back and tell that person that's going to do national service um, if you felt that there was any concern going through his mind about signing up and moving to Germany for a couple of years? Well, of course, there is no national service now, as you know, and there hasn't been for quite a long time. I don't think it was a bad thing, actually, because I think it knocked people into shape. When I was in there, there were lots of teddy boys, and they were usually picked on by the corporals and the sergeants, and first thing they had to do was have their hair cut, and then they had to sort of fall into line, and anybody who was a rebel in any way had it sort of kicked out of them. But it, it turned boys into men, really, so... Uh, I think the advice, the the advice, if I could give any uh, anyone from my life experience, is to try early on, if you can, to find a job that you love, because if you, I think you, you 
we touched on this earlier, but if you do, um, you won't be looking at the clock. You won't be waiting to sign off for the day. I know it's, I know it's easily said, and I know that not everybody can do it, but if you can find a job, you, we spend an awful lot of our lives at work, not as much recently, of course, but we do. And, um, uh, I think that I've enjoyed my work uh, as much as my leisure time, really. So uh, that that is the piece of advice I would say. Try and find something. I mean, I was lucky that I found something at, um, what was I, 20, that has kept me going through the rest of my life, and I'm still doing it. Mm-hmm. 